0: good evening everybody. It's great to be with y'all. As Kaipo said, my name's Cole. Um, I am not one of the pastors here at Waipuna Chapel. I'll make that clear. Um, I want to start by just, I don't know if Kaipo and and Uncle Ty can still hear me. I don't know where they went because it's so bright I can't see anything. Uh, But thank you. And it's Father's Day this weekend. It's such an encouragement to me to see guys older than me out in front of me still worshiping the Lord like that. You know, like, I work with Youth with a Mission, a little part of my introduction. So I'm, I'm kind of an old guy, and I'm 28. So I'm kind of an old guy with the folks that I work with. And so, you know, I'm always around young, zealous people who want to shout and hoot and holler for the Lord and everything. But uh, for me, I got three little ones, and, and I'm married. And, and so my life, I'm not in the same season as those people. But to see Kaipo and Uncle Ty and these guys, like, praising the Lord as kind of old guys, it, it makes me know, like... Hey, I don't have to. I don't have to stop loving Jesus in that kind of way when I get older, and so that's something that I'm celebrating on Father's Day this weekend. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm Cole. Uh, I got three little ones. My wife and I have been a part of this church since 2019. We serve with YWM Maui. Uh, we lead the school of worship. Actually, is is our ministry, and our students are in their 10th week. Week 12, they go on outreach, so they're heading out soon. And uh, and we also just this past week uh, it was a big celebration for us because. Uh, our students that were on outreach from the winter school so YM does these cycles but they were at, here for three months and then overseas for three months and they just got back and so we were last night we were here had all the tables set up and we were just hearing testimonies of what the Lord did in the nations and just hooting and hollering about all the things that Jesus did in these students lives and I, I brought this up to our group uh, the little, we do a little huddle before church and pray for the service and everything and chapter 1 of Corinthians, which is what we talked about last week, talks about how the Lord uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Well, if you look at a group of DTS students, it's the truth. Like the, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing them. I was a DTS student once too. But the Lord uses kids that are like 18, 19, 20 years old. They're opening their Bibles for the first time. And then three months later, they're going to the nations and telling people how much Jesus loves them. It's just it's amazing the way that the Lord moves in their hearts and to see the transformation. It's it's a payday for us, um, and so that's kind of what well, uh, there's a little life update for you guys. But that's what I've been doing uh, this past week, and now I'm really excited to share with you guys in this series that we've been talking about this beautiful mess. and And tonight we're going to talk about the wisdom of God and how it sort of speaks into this beautiful mess. Which is to say that chapter one called it the world calls it foolishness, God calls it wisdom. It's a little bit of a mess. And so um, I'm going to read all of chapter 2. It's not super long. Don't fall asleep. But I'm going to read all of chapter 2. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk through this scripture, okay? So it'll be up on the board. Follow along with me. So this is Paul speaking. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that, it's an important so that, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory... The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for uh, your wisdom. I thank you, Lord, that perhaps to the world it looks foolish. And yet, Lord, it's the only place we can find life. Lord, I, I thank you, God, that you have used the, the weak and the insignificant things in this world to bring yourself glory. And I pray, God, tonight that this sermon would be one of those things, Lord, that your word would be preached and yet your glory would be seen. And, and so I ask you, God, to come and, and speak, Lord, and unless the Lord builds the house, the labor is labor in vain. So we ask you, Lord, to come and, and do this. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So before we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden real quick. So what, what's the first sin in the Bible? It's, it's looking at God's definition of good and bad, right? He says, trust me, do these things my way. And instead of trusting his wisdom, we choose our own. Instead of trusting God's definition of good and bad, we say, "Ah, I'm going to take this. What's the result? What's the result in the Old Testament? Well, it's a line of people that act, actually start to live like the snake, right? They're liars and cheaters and thieves. An entire species of people... Living out of their own definition of good and bad. Living out of their own wisdom. Looking at what looks good to them and taking it. Taking it. Just living out of their own definition of right and wrong, good and bad, light and dark. Living on instinct and lust and desire and intuition and bringing death into the world. But what does God promise to Adam and Eve in that moment? He says, I'll bring a person from this line who is going to crush the head of the snake. He's going to disarm and destroy the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. That's what he promises right there. The spiritual power that leads to death is going to be destroyed. And and you say, aha, yes, good. I love a, a battle between good and evil. We love those, right? And the Bible tells us that this battle is going to end in victory for the good guys in the story. That's great. And that it is going to be proclaimed in the Bible under the title of good news. Gospel. It's going to be good news. That's good. (laughs) The good guys are going to win and we're going to call it good. But the Bible actually tells us and shows us over and over again that when this story gets preached, when the good news about Jesus gets told, people look at it and they say, foolishness that's what happens over and over again in the bible story silliness <laughs> so let's remember that you're going to set that aside and let's talk about for a second the nature of news okay so we kind of know this is what the news is going to be this person's going to come destroy this spiritual forces of darkness and he's going to save us so let's talk about news for a second what's the nature of news in our world today it's it's just content it's just content we are bombarded by information that if we didn't know it Our lives would continue on just the same. It doesn't actually change us. It doesn't change us. We are not impacted by the information that we take in hardly at all. We are constantly filled with information. News in the ancient world was high level or it was no news at all. Okay? No reason to send someone on a months-long trip to walk to the other side of the world to tell people the weather. Right? That's not news. I have eyes. I see. Or about celebrity gossip. That's not news. You're not sending somebody on months-long journey to go tell somebody about a Kardashian. That's not happening. True news is an announcement about an event or a person that has actually changed the course of events in the world, Right? There is some real news, but our phones tell us there's a a lot more news than just the real news, yeah? Do you think Paul had ever received good news before in his life? You think he'd ever received good news before he started wandering all over here, telling everybody the good news? Yeah. You know what he didn't do when he received that good news? Was change his entire life and alter his entire existence around that news. He just sort of received it, right? Because some news is just information. It's, it's not something that has happened as a result of which the world is now a different place. It's just information. Right? Paul, Paul is telling these people in Corinth, in this little city up here, over here. Paul is telling these people in Corinth something that they've never heard before. About a person they've never heard of. From a place they've probably never been. And nor can they pull up satellite images of. They are experiencing the wisdom of God, these people in Corinth, and to them it sounds foolish. And we're going to unpack a lot of the reasons why, but I just want us to consider that. Paul is telling them that a new king is on the throne, and you either have to get in with him, or you are lost. And he's telling them that this king was a Jewish dude who lived and died, and that was it. And then was resurrected, okay... But this is like, again, we're, we're not talking about news in the sense that we get to just like watch a video of it. You have to just believe what this guy is saying. It's good news. The wisdom of God is genuinely historically attached to events that happened. This is what Paul is telling the Corinthians. <laughs> okay, think about this. The good news, the wisdom of God is historically attached to events that happened just a few years ago. Actual things that took place to an actual person. It's not bare spirituality. The wisdom of God is foolishness to them because it's a dude who lived and died. And Paul says it's a God who lived and died. To them, he was just a God. Before Paul goes to Corinth, he goes to a city called Athens. And there he sees all of their idols and all their statues. And he says, I see you are very spiritual people. Let me tell you about the God. To the Corinthians, to the Athenians, he was a God. So we learned this in chapter one, but the Corinthian Christians had to overcome their Greek desires for the wisdom of the world. And, and the way that Paul is going to describe natural people in chapter two is that they're actually unable to discern the wisdom of God because it is foolishness to them. Does that make sense? So news has come into the world about a person and about an event that, according to Paul, the person speaking to these people, has radically changed the entire course of everything, and they've got to get with it now. And 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 to that, it sounds foolish. I think if someone came in the door over there on the side and just said, I know you guys have been living like this, but let me tell you about this dude who lived and died on the plains of Mongolia, but he was resurrected from the dead, trust me, and you have to change everything you're doing because of that thing, that would sound like foolishness, and, and essentially, that's what's happening here, and, and Paul says in chapter 2, this is going to be the key thing, that the natural person is unable to discern it, okay? Now, let me tell you a story about my mom real fast, so I got the okay to tell this story, because uh, I wanted to ask, it's not going to paint her in the most positive light, although I'm going to start with some positivity. Uh, my mom is extremely intelligent, all right? My mom's very smart, uh, and she has a great sense of direction. It's, it's one of the things that if you, if you ask my mom for directions, she will pride herself on getting you home safe, all right? Like, it is one of her things. So we had some family friends who owned a home. Um, can, can you see what's going on here? This is a shopping center. Can you tell? Okay, this is a shopping center in my hometown in Oregon, where I grew up. So on the very top, on the very north end of it, you can barely make out there's a baseball stadium up there. Do you see that? So some friends of my mom and dad, when I was really little, owned a home in that little section of town, and my mom loved them deeply, like a lot. And the land got purchased through essentially eminent domain, which is right where the government sort of says, we want that land, and we're going to pay for it, it's not like, You know, but you gotta go, you gotta get moving. Now that's a huge bummer under any circumstances, but for my mom it's a huge bummer because this was just a sweet old couple that she loved and they didn't wanna sell. They didn't wanna move. And uh, so it's an unfortunate situation. I was a little kid, I don't understand the whole deal. But here's what I do know and understand is my mom hates this place now. My mom cannot stand that this place exists. Now, uh, the first thing that went in was the baseball stadium and then, then all the shopping stuff came after. Uh, my mom was angry. It, there was a Target, a Ross, a Lowe's, a Chick-fil-A, an In-N-Out burger. We got one of everything, all right? You're like, Kaiser, Oregon has an In-N-Out burger? You bet it does, okay? You will never eat there because the line is all the way to California, but uh, we have one. We do. Uh, so we have all these things now. There's an REI outdoor store. You guys know that one? It's pretty great. Um, it's got one of everything, and my mom hates it. She can't stand it. Uh, it's been in Kaiser for about 15 years now. 15 years it's been there, and my mom still claims to not understand how it works. She doesn't, she, there is two entrances, I will give her that, and it's in a little bit of a figure eight, but she, if you asked her, like, how do you get to Target, she'd be like, I don't know, I don't know. I'm like, mom, so that street you grew up in Los Angeles, like, there's that corner store there, and then you go, like, three blocks over, and you take a left to get to your buddy's house? She's like, yeah, I still remember all that. Do you know how to get to Target in your hometown? No. She has no idea. She Well, she does. She just refuses. She'll say things like, I can't remember how to get to that store. Or, I don't know how I ended up there. The overall sentiment is simply, I hate this place, and I refuse to understand it. Okay? That's the basic deal with my mom. So, uh, my mom dislikes something, and she chooses to not understand it. In the beginning, she will not, and in the end, she cannot. At this point, it would hurt her pride too much to admit she understood the place, you know? So we're going to talk about the wisdom of God tonight. And and we're going to talk about what's so different about it and and what's different about it now. But 1 Corinthians 2 is telling us at least three things about the wisdom of God. And spoiler alert, these are the the fill-in-the-blanks on your bulletin. So here you go right now. Number one, God's wisdom is different. God's wisdom is hidden. And God's wisdom is revealed only by the Spirit. Okay? So let's let 1 Corinthians chapter 2 unpack these things about the wisdom of God for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, tell us this that God's wisdom is different. Okay? He says, Paul says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that he did not come proclaiming the gospel with wisdom and lofty speech. I came in weakness and fear and trembling, not with eloquent speech and words of wisdom, is what he says. Paul did not come to impress the Corinthians. He did not come to impress the Corinthians. The Greeks, Luke tells us this in Acts, do nothing but stand around and hear arguments. This is from Acts 17, verse 21. Luke is writing, he says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Okay? So Paul does not come to argue with the, Corinthians or compel them by the power of his language or vocabulary. He's not going to minister to these people in the spirit of the age. In fact, he is going to come and minister in the opposite spirit, he says. He's not going to sell Jesus to these people. He's not going to argue these people into the kingdom of God. It says, so that their faith would not rest in the wisdom of man, but would rest in the wisdom of God. He doesn't want people to come to Jesus because he's clever. Right? He doesn't want people to come to Jesus because he sounds like Aristotle. He wants people to come to Jesus because they love him. What, uh, I'm not saying that argument has nothing. We're going to talk about it here in a second. But what we have simply been argued into, we can be argued out of. Does that make sense? Now that's not total. Listen, argument, uh, there's a place for discussion and debate and conversation and all these things. But what we have simply been argued into, we can simply be argued out of. And Paul's not interested in that. Apparently, you saw the picture. It's 50 miles apart, Athens and Corinth. These people knew about arguments. That's all they did. They stood around and argued with each other. That's what they were about. Now, a superficial reading of this would indicate that Paul didn't use logic or something like that. But he simply told the simple gospel and expected the Holy Spirit to convict or, or not. However, while Paul says here that he does not use persuasive words... In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he actually says he does use persuasive language. So so Paul can't be saying that he makes no arguments or that he has no strategies for changing people's minds. Um, This is going to make me sound like a huge nerd. But the fullest treatment of the meaning of these words, eloquence, superior wisdom, wise, persuasive words, this stuff, is in a commentary by a guy named Anthony Thistleton, and you should not read it. It's enormous uh, commentary on 1 Corinthians. But in some, Thistleton says this, that Paul is rejecting bullying. He's not going to verbally bully these people by using force of personality or cutting disdain or super confident conversation to beat the listeners into wanting to be on his side. We see that on TV all the time. He's going to use a spirit of Humility. The second thing, he's not going to be an applause-generating speaker. He's not going to be saying all this stuff that's just going to be consumer-oriented rhetoric, playing to the crowd's prejudices, getting them to respond just the way that he wants to. That's not how he's going to do that. And he's not going to be manipulative or overwhelming the crowd with his verbal dexterity, you know? He's not going to use all of his wit. He's, he's going to show them the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we're going to see here in a second. We have to see and understand the contrast between Paul's presentation of the wisdom of God and the Greek presentation of man's wisdom. Paul Paul is not saying here, I I want to be clear, Paul is not saying that he just sat slumped over in the corner, whispering the gospel to the person who got the closest. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that he is going to reject emotionalism, mental bullying, manipulation, through appealing to their prejudices, he's not going to do any of that stuff. Paul came in weakness. Paul came in humility, even to the point later on in this book and in 2 Corinthians, even in humiliation, because these Corinthians are going to walk all over Paul a lot of times. And he's kind of going to let him do it for a while. But Paul says this in 2 Corinthians that I think is really important to bring in right now. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians. Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have, this is what I was talking about, the manipulation and stuff. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Okay, so if you look at this as kind of a partner passage to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 section, what Paul is actually saying is that this ministry I have is not mine. It's God's ministry. It's God's ministry. And because the power of the gospel is God's power and not Paul's power, he's not going to preach in a way that takes away from the glory of Jesus Christ and glorifies his own wisdom, eloquence, or philosophy. He's not going to preach to build numbers. He's preaching to make disciples. Does that make sense? And we talked about this, too, Pastor Sean talked about this two weeks ago with this, uh, some of the issues, and, and, and Josh jumped on it too last week. Just, I go to so-and-so's church. I, I, who's your pastor? Oh, I go to so-and-so's church. It's not, no, the church is God's, right? When we get in our heads as listeners that, oh, I go to so-and-so's church because I like that guy. What you're actually saying is you have abs- you've absorbed the gospel through the opposite spirit that Paul is trying to preach it in. Does that make sense? You're saying I'm here because he did preach with eloquence and clever words. I'm not here because of the power of God. I'm I'm here because Pastor Sean's handsome, you know? Anyways. Uh, So what does he preach? What does he preach? He says nothing except Christ and him crucified. And he says through the demonstration of spirit and power. So he says, he kind of enumerates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what he says, the message he preached. The good news he preached was this, and it was of first importance. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, he was raised on, in accordance with the scriptures. Then he goes on to say that he appeared to the apostles and to 500 and then to me. So Paul is saying, actually, what I, part of what I think he's saying is some eyewitnesses have seen this guy and you can go ask them, which is pretty amazing. Um, But Paul is frustrated by the Corinthians in this letter, this whole letter of 1 Corinthians, as we're going to get to a lot of his frustrations later on. He's frustrated by the Corinthians and the way that their church is living because he preached to them the gospel and demonstrated it through the spirit and power. And there's a lot of talk about spiritual gifts later on. But then they took the miracles and the life of the spirit and forgot the gospel They took their gifts and then they ended up using them on themselves, as we're going to find out in chapter 12 and 14. They took the power, they took the gifts, and they used them for themselves. They took Paul's humility and his mercy and the weakness in the gospel he preached and they walked all over him for it. They took the power, they took the gifts, and they used them for themselves. Paul preaches the gospel and the gospel only. And it, it, you could say, would it not be right then to say that for Paul, the wisdom of men is at least a use of the human mind, which comes, with, comes up with ideas and thoughts that are contrary to the meaning of Christ's actual death. Or to put it another way, if, if we are following the, these dictates of merely human wisdom, then the claim that the king and creator of the world was executed like a criminal... Because we are sinners deserving death will simply be regarded as foolishness. Right? Do you think about that? Like what the message is that we're actually preaching, what he says in 1 Corinthians 15 is the message is that Christ Jesus, the anointed one of God, died. That's foolishness to the Greeks. Paul is a philosopher, he's an educated, articulate Roman citizen. He actually had a lot of power and privilege in the first century world. He allowed himself to be humbled and ashamed in front of these Greek thinkers because he preached the gospel without deception or eloquence for the sake of the glory of Christ and not his own. In in Philippians chapter 3, he's going to enumerate all of his qualifications and he's going to say, I don't care about any of that because I love Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. And here it's the same. He's a philosopher. He's educated. He's incredibly articulate. His letters that he writes are some of the greatest pieces of Greek literature that we have. This guy's amazing. He's a genius. And he's saying to the Corinthians, When I came and showed up here, I set all of that aside so that you would not rest your faith in me, but in Jesus Christ. Did Paul know stuff besides the gospel of Jesus that would have impressed these people? Yes. (laughs) Yes, and he refused to share it because he would not make disciples of Paul. He wanted disciples of Jesus, so he refused to impress them. So that, it says this, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, but in the power of God. Paul wants the Corinthians to see how insufficient their Greek way of being was. He he wants them to see that making arguments and presenting clever-sounding ideas does not lead you to true power or encounter with God. Greek philosophy cannot save you. (laughs) Clever teachers cannot save you. Apologetics cannot save you. Political leaders cannot save you. And Paul's eloquence wasn't going to save him either. Only Jesus could save them. Paul is desperate. Desperate for real encounter with Jesus for this group of people. He wants them to encounter Jesus. Would Paul have been more respected? Would the church have grown in more numbers? Would the Corinthians have had less problems if Paul had united them around something that they already knew? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Would they have been happier if when Jesus came to them, they didn't actually have to change how they were living? Yeah, that's what we're talking about with the tree, with the wisdom and the eating our own thing. It would be, we would all think it was a little bit sweeter if Jesus came and was like, you guys are crushing it right now. (laughs) But Paul, just like Jesus, doesn't allow people to come to Jesus under false pretenses. He doesn't let it happen. He won't let you come like that. Because he does not want you to rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that's the first thing. The wisdom of God is different. And it's unique. But unfortunately, Paul's going to tell us some more bad news here first. That the wisdom of God is actually hidden. It's hidden. It's confounding. He says this. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So Corinthians, he's saying in verse 6, if you look down and see that, he's saying, you guys are not mature. You're not mature. Why? Because you are after, all you care about is human wisdom and power. All you want is to be a pagan who found Jesus. (laughs) You don't want to be transformed. You want to live like you were, but with Jesus added on. All you want is to use God for his power. You don't care about him. The wisdom of God outlives, outmuscles, and outtransforms the wisdom of this world. And he says this what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says this wisdom is hidden, that no one has seen, heard, or imagined the end of this wisdom of God. But here's the thing okay, our response to something like this can either be faith or doubt. Okay? The choice of ways is before us right now. If someone comes along to you that you don't know, and they say something like, I've got the best thing ever for you. It's, it's going to be amazing and beautiful and fulfilling. All you have to do is follow me right now. And you say, okay, but I don't know you. So what is it? And And the response is, well, I can't really explain it to you I just, you just have to trust me and come with me and follow me, and I promise it'll be great. It'll be great. This is why the Bible tells us that faith is the entry point. Real saving faith doesn't mean you have no evidence. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, Paul says, I demonstrated the power of God to you, okay? He said, I demonstrated the power of God to you. It doesn't mean you have no evidence, But it does mean that you're willing to come after someone you haven't seen for a reward that he says you can't imagine. That requires faith. And and for the Corinthians, it's actually probably even harder than it is for us right now. If you imagine this being a Corinthian, the Corinthians had no idea about Jewish people and no idea about Jesus. But Paul is asking for real saving faith that really can only come through something special. And that's what he tells us right here in verse 10. So we get to some good news here now. How does God reveal his wisdom? His wisdom is revealed by the Spirit and the Spirit only. Paul says this, these things have been revealed to us by the Spirit. You cannot love the things of God unless he gives you spiritual sight. You cannot. We are we are predisposed to be enemies of God. Jesus dying on a cross and calling you to follow him when you could just have a comfortable life of success without him, that's foolishness. <laughs> he says, "Follow me." And you say, "To where?" And he says, "To the cross." And you say, "No." <laughs> but that's where he's calling. Paul says this in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. They're foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Not able to understand them. And and it just says the natural person. It doesn't say that particularly evil person that you are thinking of right now. It's saying the natural person. What a a sweeping indictment of the human race. (laughs) The natural person is unable to discern the things of God. Ordinary person. Every person minus the Spirit of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why not? Why not? Because you cannot accept as wise what you see as foolish. You cannot. My mom will not explain to you how to get to Target. She won't. And the natural man can only see the wisdom of a crucified Messiah as foolishness. Now, I know that we are so desensitized to this. We got crosses hanging up. We talk about Jesus all the time. We got holidays about it. We're singing songs about it. Everything in our lives is about Jesus dying on a cross. People wear crosses. Do you know how insane that would be in this Greek and Roman world? To walk around wearing a cross? That's nuts what we are saying is that this glory is in a god who dies and the greeks are like weak soft is not strong enough what is this that's foolishness we say that our god died that is craziness and we take it for granted and we wear it around our neck we talk about the blood of Jesus as if that's a normal thing to say. <laughs> that's foolishness, you guys. But it's all we have. You cannot see this without the Spirit of God, he says. And it gets worse. It gets worse. Our natural blindness is exploited and hardened by the God of this world. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. We're back to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians now. It says it this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You say, how can that be? Well, Jesus says it in John 6, 63. He says it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. God's wisdom is revealed by the Spirit. But here's what's amazing, Church it actually says that God has given us the Spirit. He has given us the Spirit so that we might understand, he says, the things freely given us by God. The message of the New Testament is clear. If God does not help us love Him, we will not. But the message of the New Testament is also clear. God is out there to help you. He wants you to see he, he is out there bringing blind eyes to see. He is bringing dead people to life. It's what he's about. So yeah, this paints a very hopeless picture of you and me and your neighbor and, and your sister and your kids. This paints a scary picture until you remember that it really was God who died because he cared that much about you. Does that make sense? Like, it is scary until you realize that this God actually had the wisdom to see what was necessary. It is bad news and it is craziness that this God is living like this and we're living like this. And we can't see him and we can't love him and we can't thank him and we can't worship him. And he says, but I got sight for you. <laughs> it, like, for, like you think about your kids, how much you love your kids. They're in bad shape if you didn't love them. But you do. (laughs) We're in bad shape if he doesn't love us. But he does. But He does. We come into this world as an enemy of God. We cannot love God without God's help. We cannot see God without God's help. The light is here and the light is hated. Guys, you're going to see the light, but you won't love the light without God's help. But isn't it great that he loves you? But I want to say this. What 1 Corinthians has told us, what the rest of Corinthians is going to tell us is that, and Jesus has made it very clear in the Gospels, that the good news isn't good news to everybody. Do you guys remember how Herod responded when he found out that the king had been born? The shepherds are like, that's good news, bro. And Herod's like, uh, we got work to do. And it's nasty work. Right. What do the powerful and influential and comfortable people do when Jesus comes to them? They crucify him. They're offended by him. They are thrown off by him. You guys, remember all the way back to the beginning of this evening what we were talking about when I told you that we were like, oh, so excited about a battle between good and evil, but what happened when the good came into the world? We killed him. We have to have the mind of Christ if we want to love the things of God. This is why the gospel is good news to the poor in spirit. Right? Good news to the meek. Good news to the broken. Good news to the powerless. The Corinthians were looking for power and so they saw the crucifixion as foolishness. Paul's question was not what good can I do for Christ but rather what good can Christ do for the world through unworthy me?" It was not how much power can I muster, but how much power can Jesus show through my weakness? This is why we have to care most of all about allowing the Spirit to bring us to life. Falling in full dependence on the grace and power of God, nothing else will do. Nothing else will bring us to life. But in Jesus, in the wisdom of God, we have absolutely everything necessary to find life and hope and peace and power. True, real power in God. And this is what Paul says. We have the mind of Christ. He says, These things are spiritually discerned, and you can't see it without me. And then he says to the Corinthians, You have the mind of Christ. Who has understood the mind of God? He asks. No one but the Spirit. And what does the Spirit give us? Miracle of miracles. He gives us the mind of Christ so that we can see Jesus on the cross and say glory. And because we are utterly dependent on the grace of God to bring us to life, we shouldn't care if this is the biggest church on the island. We shouldn't care if this is the most successful church. We should care that we are a church where Jesus is glorified, His wisdom is loved, His people, discipled. And those things come only through the power of the Spirit. Those things only come through the power of the Spirit. John Piper said this a very long time ago about the growth and the health of his church. He says this Not that I distrust the power and promise of God, but I distrust myself. Not so much that I will fail as the world counts failure but that I might succeed in my own strength and wisdom and so fail as God counts failure. We don't want to be a church that succeeds because we preach a good news that we make up. We want to be a church that succeeds as God counts success. And that is that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus are seen and loved and glorified. Does that make sense? So let's, let's, let's take a couple hooks home with us here. One thing that I, I mean this as an encouragement, not as like, a, this isn't bad news. This is good news. We can make the gospel understandable, but we cannot make it understood. The salvation of your neighbor does not rest in your hands. It rests in God's, and that's good news, I promise, because God loves your neighbor more than you do, Okay? So you can preach all the gospel you want, and you can make it understandable, but God's the one who makes it understood. Hey, that's good news because He loves them more than you do, and He's got purposes and plans for them better than what you got. Okay. The final power rests in the Holy Spirit and not in you. You can walk with Jesus, follow the Holy Spirit, preach with skill, and nothing happen. We can make the gospel understandable but we cannot make it understood. That is the power of God. The second thing I want to encourage you with <laughs> is that the wisdom of God will look like foolishness at times. You should not be s- surprised if you, in your time with Jesus, are asked to do something by him that does not make sense right off the bat. You're walking with Jesus and he asks you to do something, you're like, no, Jesus. You say, that's the wisdom of God, bro. You did not think of that. You might be asked to do something uncomfortable. You might be asked to do something foolish. You might be asked to do something that looks like craziness. Because that's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is probably going to be something that we wrestle with. That's that's probably the case. If it was your wisdom, you wouldn't be wrestling and it would be no good. And, And here's the thing. Temptation is tempting. The tree is going to look good to you. Yeah? The tree is going to look good to you. It's going to look better to you than what God is offering you, but it won't lead to life. It will lead to death. That's the promise God made to Adam and Eve. It's the promise he's made to you. Your tree leads to death. He has a way that leads to life, and every other way leads to death. And the wisdom of God is probably going to look foolish at times, and it's going to be all right. So then, rest in the wisdom of God. Rest in the wisdom of God. When you're following Him, you're walking with Him, you're trusting Him, and you're on the edge, and it's, you, you don't see any way out, you rest. Why? Because you got here with God. <laughs> if we go all the way back to the beginning of this, go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible story as a whole, I want to ask you what God asked Adam and Eve Will you trust my wisdom, or are you going to eat from your own tree? Are you going to rest in my wisdom, or are you going to go to your tree? Will you go with the lamb, or will you go with the snake? Because apparently, apparently, Jesus beat the snake on the cross. He says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Your sin, by the way. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's why we wear that cross, hey? Jesus took the full measure of the thing that was supposed to be the greatest deterrent, the thing that was supposed to shut you up the hardest. Jesus ate it all up and came right out of the grave. That's what it means when he put them to open shame. People dying on the cross, they are the open shame, but not Jesus. Jesus is saying like, I'm, I'm winning right now. <laughs> rest your faith in the peace and power and wisdom of God, not in the power and wisdom of men. Don't rest your life on arguments made by people. Don't rest your hope on a political party to bring peace to this world. Don't rest your hope on science to bring power to this world. Don't rest on your spouse to fix you. It's not happening. Rest on the wisdom and the power of God to bring life. Just give a quick example, but let's say you've been listening to a preacher for a long time. And every time you have a question, you go to this person, you look up their website, they answer questions for you. Maybe you actually know this person, and maybe they performed your wedding, and they did marriage counseling for you, I don't know. But then you find out that that person's been living a double life. What's that going to do to your faith? If you've been resting in the wisdom and power of that person, then it's going to rattle you. This is why it's so crucial for our faith not to rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Because if it rests in the wisdom of man, it's a mirage. It's not real. And the last thing I just I want us to ask ourselves. Is just think about these questions. But where do you live and how can you contextualize the wisdom of God to your life? Are we living in Corinth or are we living in Jerusalem? Are we living in Zion or are we living in Babylon? Where are we living? Does the wisdom of God look foolish to you? Does the wisdom of God look like life to you? Do your neighbors see your life and it looks like the wisdom of God is working on you? You ever see that? People are like, oh, marriage is great. And they walk around sad all the time. (laughs) I love my kids and all they ever want to talk about is just how awful it is. All their limitations. Does it look like the wisdom of God is working in your life? Do your neighbors see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven? Do your neighbors see how you make decisions and do they think you're foolish a little bit? (laughs) That's going to be all right. Do your neighbors see how you handle your wealth and your business and your family and think, man, that is wild how they're living. They're not living like me. What is, what is that? <laughs> How can you minister to your neighbors in the opposite spirit, just like Paul did? He's like, I'm not going to come preaching the gospel like that. I'm going to preach you the gospel and make sure it rests in God's power and not in me. So I, I know that's a lot of questions there at the end, but I just want us to think through, like, has the wisdom of God, I mean, it tells us been revealed by the spirit. Has it actually... Is it actually changing us? Are we actually living different? Are we living in a way that all of the people in Corinth would have looked at the Christians and been like, these people are nuts. (laughs) The way we're living can kind of be nuts. Are we living on the edge because we trust the wisdom of God? Are we living on the edge because we're resting in the wisdom of God? Are we living on the edge because we're trusting the power of God to deliver us? (laughs) Are we resting in his wisdom that's been revealed to us by the Spirit? He says we have the mind of Christ, guys. That's crazy. We have the mind of the guy who left heaven, came down to earth, died in your place, and made himself vulnerable to the people he created. Are we living in that kind of wisdom and loving that kind of wisdom? Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for tonight, and I thank you, God, for your word. I I thank you, Lord, that your wisdom is all we have. God, we live by faith because we have nothing else. And I just pray, God, for those of us tonight that are really holding on to a different rope right now. Lord, I, I pray for those of us who, we, we talk about you, we come to church, we, we look at you, but really we're trusting in man's wisdom. And we're living a life that says, I have faith in man's wisdom. I got faith in my wallet. I got faith in my house. I'm trusting the wisdom of (laughs) things that are not you. And I just want to pray, God, that you'd show us that we really don't have the control we think we have. That you'd show us that we really, we are the weak ones. We are the poor in spirit. We're the dependent ones. Would you just, by your grace, show us that? Lord, and, and for those of us that Lord, we're trying to be all in. We're trying to be all there with you, Lord. Would you, again, in your grace, show us the ways that we have not sent it all the way. Show us the ways that we have not tipped all the way over into your wisdom. The things we're still holding on to. The things we're still holding back. And Lord, I just pray that you, in your grace and in your love and in your mercy, would you show us uh, the wisdom of the Father. Show us the wisdom of the Father. Make us wise, Lord. Make us wise. We have nothing but your wisdom, Lord. Come and make us wise. We love you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.